Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. It's time for another show dedicated to the world of keto. Check out ketoreset.com for details about my New York Times bestselling book and send your questions to info at ketoreset.com. Hi, listeners. It's time for another fun Q&A session. Questions about keto. And a little singing too. Let me try that again. Questions about keto and a little singing too. How about that's enough singing? Yeah, okay, thought so. Wow, what would happen if there were no more questions? If everybody says, yeah, I got it. Okay, thanks. I understand everything about keto and so does everyone else. We're just dialed. Everyone's dialed in exactly every day. Or you have a short conversation, like you see somebody uh, in the supermarket, hey, you into that keto thing? Yeah, me too. Uh, Everything good? Yeah, perfect. You too? Okay, bye. (laughs) Uh, However, we have nuances, we have personal considerations, we always want to optimize and use ourselves as the uh, most world's foremost authority on what's the best dietary habits and lifestyle patterns for ourselves. Take the information, see what works for you. Dana Anderson asks, Hey man, I'm loving your podcast. I'm helping my wife go through a keto reset. So the new pressure cooker keto book is pretty helpful in that endeavor. Have you guys seen that book? The Keto Reset Instant Pot Cookbook. Oh my gosh, there's some fun stuff in there. And especially the time-saving aspect of the Instant Pot. I went ahead and got one because I was working on this project and had having to learn in a short time all about how the Instant Pot works. You know what I like to make? Bread. That's right. I have not had a slice, a single bite of bread for 10 years from June 2008 when I went cold turkey into uh, Primal Blueprint style eating, cutting all grains, uh, until I made this bread recipe. And it was the Uh, olive oil, almond flour, rosemary bread that's in the Keto Reset Instant Pot Cookbook. It is so fabulous, so delicious, dense. Uh, Put some butter on it, heat it up for a little bit, and it goes with any meal. So back into the bread scene for me. Yeah. Uh, This one is so low carb, though. It's total keto friendly. It's got like eight grams of carbs in the entire loaf. Uh, mostly the calories are from uh, fat from the uh, the olive oil and the almond flour. Absolutely delicious. So anyway, the question from Dana Anderson says, he's 50-year-old male, congratulations for reaching 5-0, six foot 157, competitive runner, banging out a 135 half marathon. If you're not familiar with running, that's moving, man, especially for a 50-year-old. Uh, I had been in what I thought was a ketogenic state for a year, so I was not fueling during runs, and I had more energy stores. Then, on a half-marathon race last year, I bonked hard at eight miles, and since then I've been gun-shy to not fuel during these distances with cubes or gels. You know what these cubes or gels are? Dana looked it up. He says they're 70 to 80% maltodextrin, 20 to 30% fructose, instant glucose energy in your bloodstream. I had been consuming three eggs and whatever leftover meat we had on race mornings two hours before, which I still do. I just haven't tried not fueling in a half marathon race since then. Okay, so he's going through a half marathon, he has no fuel on board, and he bonked hard at eight miles. First answer is, 
Let's look beyond the fueling particulars. I just have received so many questions, especially from Primal Endurance Podcast listeners trying to optimize their fueling and their ratios and whether they should have fat or whether they should have mostly carbs. And all that stuff's great. But if you're in top shape, well-rested, well-trained, have a healthy, nutritious diet and get plenty of sleep, this is going to override the particulars of your fueling strategy. For example, back in the day when I was a racer, this was uh, for some of it before the era of uh, nutrition performance foods. We didn't have energy bars. We didn't have gels. All we had was uh, I would take licorice on long rides. I'd take coconut date balls from the health food store, uh, some Gatorade in the water bottle. You know, we didn't have much, but it worked out okay because when you're in good shape, you're not going to get cramping or bloating or things like that during a race. I just want to put that point out there. So when you bonked hard halfway through a half marathon race, um, maybe it was because of uh, insufficient preparation, maybe a little bit of overtraining where you put yourself over the edge during the race, and it wasn't entirely because you didn't optimize your fueling strategy. However, even for the ketogenic endurance athlete trying to run that far, it's a good idea to be open to uh, consuming sugar during the race. Remember, it's a race. The goal is to get a fast time, to get to the finish line as fast as possible by any means necessary, except for doping, especially if you're an amateur, <laughs> okay? So uh, many of the leading athletes, uh, Zach Bitter talks about this. You can look on his blog and see what he ate during his uh, national record performance in the 100-mile run on a track, which he did in under 12 hours. And he threw an assortment of different high sugar foods in there because he was just trying to fuel. And when you're running, you mute the insulin response anyway. So if you do suck down a Jill or an energy drink, which might have helped you at mile eight on that day, it's just going to go right into the furnace and get burned. It's not going to interfere with your overall ketogenic strategy. So I think it's a great idea to pack uh, energy that you might need and might not need during long training sessions or races. Ted McDonald talks about that uh, on his trip on the Inca Trail, uh, heading up to Machu Picchu. It was a very arduous hike. Most people take five days. He and his friend did it in 11 hours or something, and he was trying to do it in full ketogenic mode uh, to prove he could do it and optimize his fat-burning capabilities, uh, start cranking out some major ketone levels to get up to the uh, up the mountain. And so what he did was, because he was out there in uh, the, uh, the the hinterlands of Peru, he knew that there was not going to be a 7-Eleven on the route in the event that he needed sugar. So he packed with him energy bar, energy gel, you know, a straight shot of sugar if necessary during the hike. And what he discovered was he didn't need it. No, he took one bite of the energy bar and that's it or something like that. So he didn't really need those fuel sources, but he said that he felt an increased sense of psychological comfort and confidence knowing that he could reach back into his fanny pack anytime and get sugar if he experienced the need to, which I believe oftentimes presents itself as feeling a little goofy, uh, losing your cognitive function quickly. I know I used to kind of get numb in the face when I was getting close to bonking or bonking. So my cheeks would start to get numb and I'd feel a little goofy, couldn't talk right, couldn't concentrate well, 
and then head into the nearest convenience store and slam down. Oh my gosh, we would get Hostess pies, Skittles, and root beer. Just disgusting stuff. Uh, back then, that was the only thing available. And um, it's not that disgusting when you're at mile 90 of a 120-mile bike ride and you need something to keep you going. Okay, Bruno asking questions. I'm a 42-year-old woman. Oh, I hope this is connected to Bruno's letter. Um, Okay, Bruno, I think. 42-year-old woman with low or normal body weight. Both my parents have high cholesterol, and almost all of my family members have died due to strokes. A year ago, I started paleo. My nurse practitioner recommended it due to my climbing cholesterol levels. I didn't want to take statins, so I gave it a try. After the first month, I noticed how wonderful I felt. The chronic migraines I'd lived with my whole life stopped, and I realized I previously had a low-grade headache all the time. I eat pretty strictly paleo, rarely eating anything non-paleo, simply because I prefer to feel well. Uh, So I believe she's talking about uh, how wonderful she felt eating paleo, not from taking statins. It's just the the grammar there. We went right into how great she felt. So she uh, was taking statins at the urging of medical advice, but switching her diet was the wonderful revelation. Uh, So after eating paleo, I was quite disheartened when my cholesterol levels continued to climb drastically. My GP ordered more extensive uh, cholesterol panel where you're looking at the particle size and so forth. So um, she's looking at HDL, 115, triglycerides, 74. What do we know from listening to the show frequently? That some of the world's leading experts like Dr. Ron Sinha, author of South Asian Health Solution, Dr. Kate Shanahan, author of Deep Nutrition and the Fat Burn Factor, uh, tout the triglycerides to HDL ratio as the number one heart disease uh, risk factor uh, variable, right? So the goal of getting triglycerides and HDL at one-to-one or better would be the ultimate uh, expression of being uh, heart disease risk-proof. So uh, her HDL, 115, her triglyceride, 74. So she's superior to -to one-to-one ratio. And the HDL number getting up to 115, that's as high as I've ever seen. The main goal for a population is to get that HDL up and over 40. So you want to see that thing higher than 40, and you want to see your triglycerides under 150. That's sort of an urgent health uh, uh, objective out of the gate to make sure that you're not a ticking time bomb, right? Um, She's uh, revealing a bunch of other numbers for her LDL particle sizes and says, tomorrow I'm seeing the cardiologist. I'm worried he's going to put me on statins or change me uh, from from my paleo scene to a low-fat, high-carb. I don't want to change my diet. I feel great, have great energy. I've read MDA, Wheat Belly, the paleo books by Walls, Cordain, and Wolf. They all make sense to me, even though it's contradictory to conventional wisdom but nobody seems to know the answer on the cholesterol issue. Wow. Well, an important reflection for everyone. She feels great, doesn't have her headaches, has a favorable triglycerides to HDL ratio. I'm not even going to comment on these other numbers because I'm not a physician. Uh, These different LDL particle size numbers. Generally, what we're striving for when we do the particle size test is we want... Uh, 
most of the cholesterol to be of the large, fluffy variety rather than the potentially problematic small, dense LDL that's small and dense enough to lodge on the walls of our arteries and become oxidized and inflamed and kickstart the process of heart disease. So most people that uh, have trouble with heart disease have a lot of small, dense LDL floating around, uh, increased risk of heart attack. So it's more important than the total LDL number to look at your particle sizes. But if you have low triglycerides, it's a good indicator that you are doing well. Even if you have a high LDL number, a lot of times that's genetics and a lot of people have a lot of large fluffy LDL floating around there. That said, a small number of the population has some difficulty with uh, digesting saturated fat, increased intake of saturated fat. And so the protocol there is to, if you're in the keto scene, you want to go more toward the direction of uh, the monounsaturated, the omega-3s, the oily cold water fish, avocado, coconut products, and de-emphasize the bacon and butter and the saturated fat intake, which for most people is no problem, but certain people, because of their genetics, might want to Uh, alter the makeup of the fat that they do consume that's a high percentage of their diet. Um, So those are my general comments. And for Bruno, I'm hoping the best for you with your interactions with the doctor, knowing that your HDL is high and triglycerides are low. You certainly don't seem like a heart disease risk patient. Next, Amanda Peterson. I'm new to this fat adapted thing. I'm trying to turn this into my lifestyle and things are bound to come up that fall into the 20% category of this 80-20 concept of uh, the 80% rule as we communicate it in the primal blueprint, which is to strive for 100% success, 100% adherence to primal paleo lifestyle habits, but accept an 80% success rate because of the realities of modern life. And I want to explain this carefully because it's so commonly misinterpreted and people walk around bantering the term, yeah, I'm I'm on the 80-20 plan and so weekends are my cheat days. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, we're not coming out of the gate with an 80-20 mindset because that's a self-defeatist mindset where you're going to have rationalizations. You're going to say, hey, everything in moderation. Oh, hey, this counts as one of my 20% meals. And you're most likely going to end up a 60-40 type person. And when you're trying to ditch grains, sugars, and refined vegetable oils from your diet, we don't want to have even 80-20 type of uh, scoreboard. We want to have 100% adherence and commitment to that because it's a slippery slope. And we know from books like Wheat Belly and Dr. Robert Lustig's work with sugar, Gary Taubes as well, that sugar has profoundly addictive properties at the same level as the, of the, as the powerful hard drugs, the opioids. So when you have a little sugar, it begets cravings for additional sugar. When you have a little grains in Wheat Belly, Dr. Davis describes the gliadin protein in the grain, the modern wheat crop that stimulates appetite. It stimulates appetite to the tune of you consuming an additional 300 calories per day. This strange agent that's a modern cultivated, uh, result of a modern cultivated wheat product. So we don't want to mess with that slippery slope. We want to say that we're going to ditch grains, sugars, and bad oils and have zero tolerance for that. And if by chance, 
something leaks in there at a 5% score many months down the line when you've already done the hard work to become fat adapted. So I'm sitting here talking to you, admitting and revealing that I like to go on popcorn binges once in a while and make a big bowl with a ton of butter and salt on it and chow down on that thing. Or I might choose to have fish tacos with corn tortillas once in a while, or even have the blue corn nachos from Dos Coyotes restaurant in Sacramento area. Delicious stuff once in a while. So I have grains in my diet once in a while, but it's coming on the heels of a 10-year adherence to primal paleo and recent years, uh, a lot of ketogenic eating periods. So I'm not troubled by it, but if you're not there yet and you're struggling and trying to transform lifestyle but keep experience, uh, f- keep experiencing fallbacks, backslides, you need to take your approach up to 100% commitment and forget this 80-20 concept. Remember the spirit of the 80% rule. Uh, perfection is impossible, uh, but striving for perfection is, is okay. That's what John Wooden says. That's an admirable goal is to strive for perfection on every possession, right? If he's coaching his basketball team. So I'm not calling it the 80-20 concept. I'm going to call it the 80% rule, accepting a little bit of imperfection here and not stressing about it. Do you guys get that distinction? Um, Amanda, totally not picking on you. You just teed me up for a great discussion about that. So uh, back to your question. Uh, Do you do anything different the day after a non-primal meal? Anything to get your body sorted out after uh, having more carbs than usual? Or does it kind of get back to fat burning quicker now? Oh, that's a great question. So yeah, the day after a departure from your dietary goals or a planned indulgence, whatever you want to call it, you can recalibrate quickly and perhaps aggressively by going on an extended fast or stringing together a series of ketogenic meals that are really low carb and just forcing you back, turbocharging your fat burning engines that were temporarily shut down because you had the glucose ingestion. It's fun, it's great, it feels good to be able to recalibrate quickly, and now you're a clean burning machine, your diet is only as good or bad as your last meal anyway, so fun stuff there. That's something different that you can do after a non-primal meal or especially uh, a period of time like going on uh, your cruise and eating all sorts of desserts and things. And interesting for me, I notice when... um, I've had some treats over the past few years, let's say. So once in a while, I'll have a treat here and there, like a true indulgence, like uh, a square of flan when I'm out to dinner in Mexico. Homemade flan, absolutely delicious, but uh, sugar is not part of my game. I usually don't have any appetite for it. You know, I've dehabituated away from it, and that's after a lifetime of uh, enjoying a whole ton of sugar over my background as a human growing up in Los Angeles and going to the candy store every day after baseball or football practice, whatever. Okay, so it's possible you can dehabituate away from anything, including sugar. Uh, but when I do have a well chosen treat, I notice that my appetite for more sugar is profound. So even like one dessert turns into dessert every night. Uh, we We went to the ice cream stand as well on vacation in Mexico, and of course, every night, hitting that stuff hard, finally going for a double scoop after a couple nights of single scoops, and so that's why I convey the idea of a slippery slope, so... um, My insight there is like, hey, when you're on vacation and having fun, perhaps it might be a rewarding, enjoyable experience to go by different rules for a while, but knowing as soon as you arrive home, 
You're not going to go to the store into the freezer section and buy some ice cream and stick it in your freezer. No, that was what was so special about going on vacation to Mexico and eating the homemade ice cream. Do you get the difference? Oh my goodness, yes. It's a huge difference. Okay. Um, And then her question about, does it get back, kind of get back to fat burning quicker now after you've built some momentum uh, being uh, keto aligned or primal paleo aligned? That's an interesting question because I think I noticed myself that I had some increased sensitivity to sugar binges for a while, and then I kind of broke through that uh, to the extent that I was able to better handle it uh, due to enhanced metabolic flexibility. Especially in my recent experiment to go keto, I remember having a couple spin outs where, oh, I I ate some uh, homemade fried plantains. Oh, they were delicious. And I remember having to crash out for a couple hours after I just got really tired and took a nap after this massive carbohydrate binge after going months and months of eating uh, very little carbohydrates in the diet. Uh, Now, a year later, uh, a year after that, let's say I have a big old bowl of popcorn and I come out of it the next day feeling like nothing happened, like I can't even remember what I ate, whether it was a keto-aligned meal, or I fasted, or I had giant popcorn. And I talked to Dr. Tommy Wood about this. There's some great shows on the Get Over Yourself podcast channel, and he said that if you're metabolically healthy, if you have good gut function, you should be able to handle anything, man. You should be able to handle a five-day fast if you decide to. You should be able to handle a a period of uh, wildly increased carbohydrate intake and wake up and feel okay the next day. If you go on that cruise and uh, you're enjoying whatever they're presenting in front of you that's way more carbs than you're used to eating, it shouldn't be this big disaster to have occasional dietary departures here and there as long as you get back to that baseline level of metabolic flexibility. And it's so great. Uh, the, the power of keto is so great here because it can put you in that fasted-like state without having to to starve yourself. So if you string together a string of keto-aligned meals and just tone down that insulin production and those glucose spikes for three days, four days, five days, uh, or an entire month, you are honing your metabolic flexibility such that, theoretically anyway, you should be more and more resilient over time and get right back into the groove uh, without a disturbance that we're sometimes accustomed to, like I'm talking about with my fried plantains uh, back when. How's that for an answer? Okay, James says, I recently did genome testing focusing on nutrition. The results showed I had mutations or reduced function of two areas that might be considered essential for thriving on a keto diet. First, it showed reduced function of a certain gene, PPAR-alpha. This is abnormally put, potentially abnormal lipid metabolism, like I talked about uh, briefly in the other question. Um, the other variant is a fat metabolism gene, uh, homozygous ACSL1. I've been cycling keto. I've been intermittent fasting. I eat strict keto six days a week and one day uh, a decent but not indulgent amount of healthy carbs. Most days I restrict my eating window between the hours of 2 to 6 p.m. Uh, I have some fat coffee in the morning. 
I have some really good results for fat loss, but I seem to be hitting a little plateau in that area of fat loss. Also, I'm suffering from pretty low energy most days beginning around noon. Can you shed any light on the possible effects of the gene variants on someone following the keto diet? If my body's not producing ketones effectively, could this be behind my low midday energy? Well, I don't know if these gene variants suggest that you're not producing ketones effectively. It seems like they're talking about potential difficulties with fat metabolism. I don't know if that goes hand in hand with you not making ketones well. I don't know as in I don't know. Either way, could be, could not be. Um, But back to your question about uh, midday fatigue, I would do some experimenting and maybe have a large meal in the morning uh, rather than just the fat coffee. See how that goes. Um, Especially with weight loss plateaus, it's time to shake it up a little bit, do some experimenting, uh, throw in some high-intensity sprint workouts. Leanne Vogel talks about uh, adding back some carbs for this carb swoosh effect where you might get uh, through a plateau just by tweaking your diet a little bit. Uh, maybe you're getting this metabolic insulin resistance that Rob Wolf talks about where you've restricted your insulin for so long that your cells aren't used to using it. And so um, a, a period of increased car- carb intake might be in order, especially if you're trying to do some uh, ambitious workout uh, performances. Uh, I feel that was uh, something that helped me was just increasing my caloric intake after a period of strict ketogenic eating where my daily caloric intake was lower than it had been for years and years of my life because of my low carb intake. Appetite was regulated, no problem doing it, but perhaps I could benefit from increasing caloric intake in tandem with uh, increasing my workout output. Also, mid midday Low energy could be all kinds of other stuff, including, uh, like Luis Villasenor weighs in a lot about, uh, not optimizing your electrolytes. So if you're not dialing in your sodium, potassium, magnesium as a recent keto adherent, that could lead to midday low energy. So try some different stuff. Congratulations on the great results that you report. Next, we go to RJ. Brad, first thing I got to say is I feel like I'm emailing a rock star after listening to your podcasts and reading the Keto Reset Diet book. Wow, I have been called a rock star by R.J. Campbell. Okay, compliment accepted. I mean, I do some rapping on podcasts, so I guess that's as close as a rock star as I'll get to be, literally. So R.J. says he's been primal for a couple years. He discovered Mark... Uh, on a podcast. He's also played with keto. He's 55. Welcome to the age group, man. I'm not an endurance athlete, but I do like to undertake... Oh, he says, I'm not an endurance athlete like you. Uh, I just play an endurance athlete on the internet, man. I'm not an endurance athlete either. I don't have any race numbers up on the wall in the last 20 years. Uh, just speed golf tournaments. I guess that's endurance. Okay, I'm an endurance athlete because I play speed golf. That's five miles of hard running and trying to shoot a good score. Okay. I do like to undertake long-distance bike rides. Okay, that makes you an endurance athlete. Come on, man. My my conundrum is how to fuel during a ride that could be up to 50 miles or up to 125 miles without a huge amount of carbs. I could ride 5 to 12 hours on these crazy rides. Of course you're an endurance athlete. I'm burning a ton of calories, 
Bars have a lot of carbs. Subway sandwich breaks a lot of rules. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this type of fueling. Is this a big issue or not? He's fearful of losing his fat adaptation by slamming carbs on these long rides. Final comments. Keep up the great work with the podcast. You guys are fantastic. I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you. Listeners, you realize I'm recording these shows inside a tiny recording studio slash closet, hitting buttons, sending files along, but I have no connection to real humans. So when you write in and say you like it, I really do appreciate that, man. (laughs) If you write in and say you hate it and tell me why, uh, that's fine too. I'll try to make sure there's no profanity playing in the background of the rap lyrics when I'm starting the shows with a little jingle. Yeah. Uh, He's listening to the Losing Belly Fat at 50 podcast today. Did my wife ask you to record that episode? Oh, man, you're a funny guy. So listen, when you're out there doing these long rides and you've become fat adapted through your diet, the dream is, the expectation is, you're going to have a reduced need for carbohydrate to fuel these performances. We have occasions of extremely fat and keto-adapted people, like Sammy Inkinen writing on his blog about doing a multi-stage mountain bike race where he's ingesting not a lot of carbs during this stage race, but enough to get him through the race. So you want to take as many carbohydrate calories as you need to sustain performance for a 125-mile ride. I wouldn't worry in the slightest. If you have to slam a bunch of carbs to get through the ride, you can test it out and figure out that point where you under-ate and had a performance drop, you bonked out there, and you don't want that ever to happen. There's no reason to drain the tank like that. But if you, over time, work toward a less reliance on ingested calories, that's going to give you a performance advantage uh, as an athlete. This is uh, a good section of the Keto Reset Diet book, talking about the amazing benefits of getting keto adapted for endurance performance. You just don't need to slam that many calories down, but you need to slam whatever you need, whatever you require to maintain blood sugar, cognitive function, feeling strong and snappy as you pedal along uh, on these long rides. Probably a great idea to get nutritious sources of calories, whole foods if possible. I know a lot of athletes like to consume fat out there, uh, like the packets of coconut butter or putting a full avocado into your bicycle jersey. And I've also experimented with that and enjoyed having some high-fat foods out there during sustained endurance performances. But technically speaking, you have plenty of fat accessible to burn. So you don't really need to consume fat during endurance performance. So the emphasis would be on natural, nutritious, easy-to-digest sources of carbs, maybe even a little protein. Some people advocate that. But trying to get the most wholesome options for energy bars A lot of them are just complete shit, and it's so sad to see these rice syrups and things like that as the lead ingredients. So you can find clean, natural energy bars. They, generally speaking, have a lot more carbs than a keto enthusiast would want to consume, so they're not a great idea for a snack during the day. I'd rather have you reach for a handful of macadamia nuts or a can of sardines. But when you're out there pedaling and performing, you're muting the insulin response during exercise. You're not going to get a blood sugar spike 
like you would if you consume an energy bar at your desk. So go find a clean energy bar. Fortunately now, uh, there's a lot of them out on the market. Lara Bar, old friend of mine, Lara American, the founder of Lara Bar, still going strong, a prominent brand. Look on the label. All they have is fruit and nuts. There's none of these chemicals or other additives. Primal Kitchen has just come out with uh, more bars. Now there's a great assortment of choices that are low-carb, good natural nutritious ingredients in there, minimal processing or extrusion like you see from these commercial bars that are a highly manufactured product. I'd rather have you taking dried fruit or things that are arguably easier to digest than the synthetic sources of sugar. There you go, RJ. Thanks for the letter, man. Keep it up. Stephen says, I'm curious. In the Keto Reset book, it says no sugar whatsoever. Does it? I guess. Okay. You want to pull that out, that insight out of it? That's fine. But I wonder, uh, because there has to be a difference metabolically between plain white table sugar and raw cane sugar. I've made the switch over to stevia and erythritol, but I've always been curious about this. I love the book and the podcast. Thank you for trying to get this information out to everybody. So when you ingest uh, refined carbohydrate product, whether it's white flour, white sugar, natural sugar, whatever, um, your body is going to convert those calories into glucose for use in the bloodstream. So there's very little difference between molasses or brown sugar or table sugar uh, in terms of the metabolic use, the effect on um, your insulin spike and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, the the more natural sugars is kind of nonsense, even when you're talking about honey or something like that, which containing more fructose has to be processed in the liver first, but that can make it more lipogenic than other forms of sugars. In other words, when you have a high fructose product like high fructose corn syrup or natural fructose products like fruit, they are first processed in the liver Uh, converted into glucose, but we also know that the liver is the place where uh, you convert uh, ingested carbohydrate calories into fat, if the case may be, if you're uh, burning through all the sugar that you uh, need and then have more uh, floating around because you had a good sugar bomb of a meal. So um, I wouldn't worry about what kind of sugar you're consuming, but generally to uh, reduce or minimize intake of any and all processed sugar. Now, stevia is a uh, a plant extract, so it's natural and it gets point scores for that. It's like 30 times sweeter than sugar, I believe. So a few drops goes a long way. It can replace, what, a tablespoon of sugar or something. So it's a common ingredient uh, used in the recipe books for primal paleo keto low carb offerings uh, same with erythritol uh, i wouldn't want to live on those things and have those on every single meal i think people get into this mindset where uh, they get a complete free pass because the low uh, count of net carbohydrates in a certain preparation but if you're making all these treats and things that are still sweet and they're replacing your old indulgences, you might be missing a bit of the point of the evolutionary health, primal paleo, low-carb, keto movement, which is to become metabolically flexible such that you can fast, that you emphasize wholesome, natural, nutritious foods, including natural, nutritious fats, and not worry so much about all the treats and the preparations that you can approximate by using sweeteners. How's that for an answer. Anybody okay with that? Hope so. 
once in a while, sure, I use stevia to make um, uh, whipped cream in the canister, right? So you have a, a pint of heavy organic cream, uh, a couple drops of stevia, and several drops of vanilla. I also use it in making my world-famous mascarpone mousse, which consists of a tub of mascarpone cheese, a half a pint of heavy organic cream, a few drops of stevia or a half a packet of the powdered stevia, um, more drops of vanilla, and you whip that thing up, and that is a fabulous uh, dessert offering where you can put fresh fruit on top and pretty much be keto-friendly if you sprinkle the fruit on and don't inhale it. Okay, Shannon... Every morning I make a smoothie with protein powder, green superfood powder, MCT oil, water, and three quarters cups of fruit, mixed berry, mango, pineapple. Is this something I can keep during the reset? I see no Jamba Juice smoothies and homemade smoothies made with juice plus lots of fruit. I'm committed to following the reset, but the fruit makes the other ingredients more palatable. So if I can just reduce them to whatever amount, that would be ideal. But again, I want to give this my 100%, so I'm curious about your input. Okay, so yeah, three-quarter cup of fruit. If you're doing the 21-day metabolism reset and this smoothie is a big part of your life, go ahead. That's fine. Cut it down to a half a cup, why not? How about a quarter cup? It's still going to be okay, and you're going to get that fruit taste. And if you're going full ketogenic... And then I would be really sparing with the fruit, stay with the berries, get rid of the tropical fruits, the mango and the pineapple, because those are among the highest glycemic of all fruits and the lowest antioxidant. I know they're also among the most delicious, but the berries have a better nutritional profile than the tropical fruits. Okay. Um, Protein powder, don't want to overdo that either when you're going full keto, but right now this sounds like a... uh, a favored part of your daily routine. I would also uh, put the vote in to get as much fat calories in there as possible so it's a macronutrient balanced smoothie. So you're putting your MCT oil in there. Uh, Maybe consider going to unsweetened almond milk or coconut milk, which has a nice fat contribution and now uh, getting more greens in there besides the green superfood powder. What I like to do on my smoothie, look on YouTube, Brad Kern's Super Nutrition Green Smoothie, is I pre-freeze leafy greens of assorted nature. So I'll have these bags in the freezer of spinach, kale, I'll put celery in there, uh, and then I'm throwing in a lot of greenery into my smoothie, a tiny bit of fruit. Like I'll put in a a half a handful of blueberries, and that's all I need uh, to uh, have that tiny fruit taste that affects the overall taste of the thing. But it's mostly a green smoothie, and it tastes great. So try to throw some greens in there too. Steve says, hey, Brad, I'm listening to episode 258. Wow, those numbers are so big. All that content out there. Where has time gone? I remember when Mark Sisson and I sat down for episode number one of the Primal Blueprint podcast and go back and listen to it because it was about chronic cardio. We still get compliments about that, that that paved the way for a recalibration of uh, principles for how to approach endurance training and general athletic training. So in episode 258, there was a question about gallbladder. 11 years ago, I was having major gallbladder attacks, up to 36 hours of the worst pain I've ever experienced. I hear you, man, because I had the emergency appendectomy three years ago, and that was some pretty serious pain for many, many hours. And speaking of that, as an aside, 
Um, I just want to put this out there. I suffered in absolutely torturous pain at home, laying in bed for about 18 hours before I returned to the hospital. Yes, that's right. I showed up at the hospital uh, complaining of severe abdominal pain. Uh, They pretty much sent me home. My fault for refusing a CAT scan because they would have found the the inflamed uh, infected appendix at that time. But they kind of offered me the CAT scan, says it maybe wasn't super important. And the nurse asked me for the chart, honey, what's your pain level? One through 10. And I said, you know, um, I'm a tough guy. I'm an athlete. And I'm going to say 10. <laughs> and I, I come to find out from doctors like my sister and Dr. Stevie that that's the most common answer in the hospital ER is people say 10. And so they kind of discounted uh, the significance of someone like me saying 10, okay? And they said, she even flipped back at me and said, honey, a 10 is when your arm's falling off and you're dragging the blood along the ground, dragging your arm into the ER. I said, okay, well, I guess it's a nine then because I really am in pain. And I went home with a personal pain calculator of 10 out of 10. So my plug to you, maybe save your life is if you're 10 out of 10 pain, stay in the hospital no matter what. Don't leave. Insist on more tests or just getting that care and staying there. Because what happened was I went home, suffered. I was reluctant to return to the ER because I've already had my experience there where they kind of sent me home and finally, finally dragged my butt back in there where I was subsequently rushed into emergency surgery with the ruptured appendix and a long hospital stay of intravenous antibiotics for days on end that really messed up my gut health and I'm still recovering from a couple years later. So if you're in pain, go to the hospital, take advantage of fabulous medical support and don't sit home trying to be a tough guy. All right? Changed my life. From that point on, I'm going to be the biggest medical wimp that anyone's seen. I will be hanging out in the hospital even if they kick me out. At, at those times that I need to. Okay, how's that for an aside? So anyway, 36 hours of terrible pain from Steve. Long story short, even after two trips to emergency, the doctor didn't believe that a 27-year-old man could have gallstones that bad and refused emergency surgery. Instead, he put me on an 18-month waiting list. By the time my appointment came, I had my gallstones under control, specifically by going keto, essentially the exact opposite of a low-fat diet that a doctor would recommend man for someone with gallstones. 11 years later, I still have my gallbladder. I don't get attacks unless I go back to the standard American diet for too long. Has to be at least two weeks, and then he gets his gallstones back. When the attacks come, it's usually two weeks after switching back to primal keto, and only lasting for a week or so, at a fraction of the original intensity. Wow, what a trippy story, man. So basically, you're, um, you're, you're carrying on, maybe with a gallbladder that's not entirely functional, because I don't understand why you're getting these future attacks regardless of your diet, right? A lot of people eat the standard American diet and don't get gallstone attacks, but you're kind of tripping me out. So I guess it's better than going under for surgery. Um, I'm not saying the gallbladder still won't have to come out eventually because I don't know, but it's happy so far. Anyway, that doesn't answer the question about keto and no gallbladder, but it might help someone currently having gallbladder issues. Thank you, Steve. Yes, the original question on episode 258 was, hey, if I don't have a gallbladder, can I still be keto? Can I still eat that much fat? Frank is next. Last question. 
I need to lose 10 inches of belly fat. I'm 65 years old. I've procrastinated. I purchased the keto reset course, but I still have not made the commitment. Today, I need to, and I'm ready. All right, Frank, thanks for writing the email, man.、Uh, good luck. I hope you're well into it by the time、uh, the receipt of the email from when the show's recording. I recently listened to Brad's blog about the keto reset course. He promised a 20% discount. But never gave one. I think he's talking about the podcast. I listened to it twice. How do I get that discount? The discount is Brad20. Type that into the discount coupon field, discount code field at primalblueprint.com and go over to ketoreset.com if you wish to look in a detailed presentation of what all is in this fabulous, incredible course. So now we have the final version of the Keto Reset Mastery course ready for you to enjoy at a 20% discount. That's a lot of money. It's worth taking the discount. It's worth signing up for the course for sure. So check out ketoreset.com. We also have the fabulously updated version of the 21 day primal reset course. So if you're wanting to transition from basically standard American diet, grain based diet, getting into primal as your first step before you go keto, check out that product too. That's a fabulous journey through. The 21 day、uh, guided tour, where each day you have objectives in the area of diet, exercise, and lifestyle. These challenges to take on to guide you and focus you on getting primal in 21 days, ditching carbohydrate dependency and trending toward becoming fat adapted. And then, when you have that baseline level of fat adaptation, metabolic flexibility, you can plunge into the Keto Reset Mastery course and get the full benefits of nutritional ketosis and getting that maximum. That highest level of metabolic flexibility possible by going through the entire journey as presented in the Keto Reset Diet book, where you do the 21 day metabolism reset, you do the fine tuning period, and then you complete a six week foray into nutritional ketosis. Hey, if you want to take both those courses, like one after the other, I will totally hook you up with an additional discount. Just email me. Also, anything about this show that you want to talk about, comments, feedback, Info at ketoreset.com. And of course, your questions. Thank you so much for such thoughtful, interesting questions. Makes the show a lot of fun. Don't forget to take the discount, Brad20, and sign up for the Keto Reset Mastery course right now. We have so many videos and downloadable information at the portal. Yours forever, a fabulous library of keto resources, one click away. Thanks for listening to the show. Do, 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 do. So, Chris Kelly, Nourish Balance Thrive, we're, we're talking about health, and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four year old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen、uh, condiments on the table. It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's fing the Primal Kitchen Wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And、uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too perfect. It's so, so endearing.、Uh, how old、um, is she? She's four. Oh my g o d So she likes like the mayo on a slab. Oh, yeah. She, so, she loves those. So, we love them as well. We have,、uh, we, we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo, we eat the balsamic, we eat the 
the ranch, um, the avocado oil we use all the time. And, and so, you know, that's completely genuine. And I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish Balance Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. And uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> it's my pleasure.